And welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study as we are looking at Second uh, Kings. We are looking at the life of Elisha, the prophet, who followed Elijah, the prophet. And uh, we're looking at one story after another about the many miracles that Elisha did. Uh, I didn't count and compare, but it's, it's almost like he did more miracles recorded than Elijah did, but... Uh, you know, interesting, fascinating stuff. Starts out the first thing, Elijah, you know, splits the the Jordan in half so he can walk on dry, la- dry ground. Uh, comes to a place where, the, in the city where there's this uh, uh, spring of water that's poison water, whatever. It was unproductive and he speaks and all of a sudden the water is fine. Uh, talks about the, the widow's oil. Uh, and he tells her, you know, get jars and fill you know, as many jars as you can. Start filling with oil and then sell all the oil. That miracle, the Shunammite woman having the son and then raising her back from the dead. And one after another, uh, we started to read the uh, story, uh, the next miracle, uh, chapter 4, verse uh, 38, talking about uh, um, Elisha came and told his pro- servant, you know, hey, go make a bunch of uh, stew. This guy goes out and he starts gathering stuff out in the wild. <laughs> Doesn't know what he's doing. Apparently picks a bunch of poisonous something from some unknown vine. Cuts it up and throws it in the pot of stew. So they're all starting to uh, eat it. Uh, verse 40. Uh, the stew was put out for the men. But as they began to eat it, they all cried out, Oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. Something they, they, they couldn't eat it. They, they recognized right away what it was. As soon as they started tasting the taste, it's, it's that... It's that herb, that's that thing, whatever it is. It doesn't tell us what it is, but they, right away they all recognize it. This is poison. <laughs> and what's fascinating is Elisha's response. Now, I said this last week at the end of the study, that if I have a pot and we're cooking stew and all of a sudden we realize something in it is poisonous, I say, dump the pot. Get rid of it. Clean everything up and start over again. What's interesting here is Elisha doesn't say that. His response is, in verse 41, get some flour. And he put it into the pot. And then he said, now serve it to the people to eat. I got to tell you, <laughs> I'm at that meal. <laughs> I'm not hungry anymore. I don't want to eat. You know, that was just poison. through flour. So, well, pastor, maybe the flour fix it. No, it was poisonous. It's a miracle that happens here. They started eating it, and there was nothing harmful in the pot. The miracle was he threw in flour, and it healed whatever it was, and now it isn't poisonous. It had nothing to do with the flour. They said, well, why did God have him throw in the flour? I don't know. It doesn't say. Did God tell these guys to do this, as we said last week? Or do they just do something expecting a miracle? I don't know. I wish I knew. It would be great to have conversations with these guys and find out what was going on. All we know is that instead of dumping out the pot, he just ah, throw some flour in it, it'll be fine, and boom, it's recorded. That's why we have the story. This was a miracle. Poison, throws a little flour. I'm pretty sure if they try to duplicate this later on their own, it wouldn't fix anything. But it did with him because he had this miracle. Now what's kind of the neat analogy here is this. Is rather than just throw it out, uh, the prophet's inclination is to redeem the pot. Now stop and think about your life, uh, 
my life. Um, it would be easy for us, and I'm sure oftentimes a lot of people will look at their lives and see the mistakes they have made, the wrong steps, the bad choices, the horrifically ignorant, stupidly destructive things that we have done in our lives. And our response to that naturally is, I'm not worth anything. God surely cannot use me. I'm sure God doesn't even want to use me. I don't know if, if uh, this has ever <laughs> happened to you, but I remember times in my life when I would be uh, so discouraged because of my stupidity that I knew God forgave me, but it was kind of like, well, he has to. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, yeah, he has to forgive me. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I'm just, I'm just uh, a number, and he has to because the Bible says he has to, and uh, which is kind of sick thinking. On the one hand, we get okay, I get forgiven, but even in our forgiveness, we're uh, limiting God's compassion and mercy to us because we think, well, he's only forgiving me because he has to. You know, and not realizing that God wants to. God is a redeemer. He is in the business of redeeming. Okay, maybe you're a pot of stew, to use this analogy. And despite your effort to make some nice, make something really nice out of your life, you went out and you got some crappy thing shoved into the pot of your life that has poisoned everything. It has ruined everything. Everything, what should have been filled with life has now been poisoned by, in this case, some unknown thing. The guy wasn't paying attention. Whose fault this is, again, if I'm sending someone out to chop up stuff out in the wild, I'm sending somebody who's been, you know, through the Boy Scouts or something, so they know what they're getting. This guy's grabbing stuff and chopping it up. And saying, oh, this looks interesting, not realizing he's got poison. And it's ruined everything. You have to understand the poison doesn't just stay in one spot. It goes throughout the whole pot. All the good stuff now has been tainted because of the poison. You ever feel like that? You ever feel like your life is tainted? Oh, man, if I just hadn't have done this. Oh, if I hadn't have done that stupidly. If I hadn't have made that mistake. If I hadn't married that idiot. If I hadn't committed this sin. If I hadn't, you know, if I would just would have done this when I was younger and now it's, I'm too old. I mean, whatever it is, we all have our version of poison that has poisoned the pot in our lives. And I love this picture here. The prophet's response wasn't get rid of it, throw it out. See, that's what we would think. Sometimes we're stunned that God doesn't throw us out. We would think, I'm not usable. God can't fix me. I am not redeemable. Well, instead of throwing it out, which would have been the easiest thing, certainly I would have voted, <laughs> dump the pot, you know, give me a bowl of Cheerios or something, man. I don't want this. Um, instead of just throwing it out and starting over, redemption. Redeem the pot. Throw in some flour. What's the flour got to do with it? I have no idea. But for some reason, he throws in a hand of flowers. Okay, now check it. And it was fine. We have a God who loves to redeem that 
which nobody believes is redeemable. You know, it's one thing to uh, see something that has potential. Like if you find an old piece of furniture or something, you know. I say this table is, you know, 300 years old, which is obviously not, but, uh, um, you know, and maybe a little beat up and stuff, but if you're, if you got a real good eye for antiques and stuff, you might recognize, ooh, this is a valuable table. You know, if I put a little effort into it, kind of refinish it, just so, you know, kind of negotiate like I don't really know, it's not worth anything, but, ooh, I really see the value and I can make something out of it. You see, that's one thing. We think, well, maybe there's enough of my life that, you know, God can see and maybe just kind of strip things down a little bit and refinish finish it. You know, I, I don't know about you. I, I'm not a piece of furniture that just, gee, if you refinish it a little bit, it'll be okay. I'm the pot. I'm <laughs> the pot of poison. It's, oh my gosh, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why did I make that choice? Why did I say that? Oh, what me and my big fat mouth. If I hadn't have said that, this wouldn't have happened, and that would. And just when you think there's no hope for you, God loves to redeem the unredeemable, loves to fix that which no one thinks is fixable. This is the God that we serve. So despite whatever you think of your own life, that you've gone too far, you've done too much, you're too stupid, uh, you're too old, you're too young, you're too bald, do whatever. Stop thinking that way. God can use you and indeed wants to use you if you will let him heal you. See, God heals the pot. So I'm not healable. Yes, you are. There's nothing too hard for God. There's nothing impossible with God. Let him redeem. Let him redeem your life. Because then when that's redeemed, then it gives nourishment and life to others. That's exactly what God wants to do with you. And if you feel like you're a pot that's been poisoned, and you know, welcome to the club. Welcome to Celebration Church. The church of the poison pots, we should call it. Of course, no one will know what we're talking about, but you'll know what we're talking about. The church of the poison pots. We've been redeemed. Hallelujah. And now we have life. All right, then, boom, right away we go to the next miracle. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. And Elisha says, hey, give it to all these guys. There's 100 guys sitting there. And the servant says, wait a minute, how? How am I going to serve 100 people with 20 loaves of bread? It's not going to work. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, They will eat and have some left over. Then he said it before them, and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Who does this sound like? Who does this remind you of? Of course, this happened before Jesus, but when Jesus came with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fishes fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So undoubtedly, thousands upon thousands of people with just a few loaves, a few fish, and had plenty left over after that. Again, what a great analogy. Uh, God, you know, for us, 
God can't use me. You know, I'm not enough. I only have so much. I don't know enough. I don't have enough education. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. I don't have la, 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 la. And it's like, if you'll just let God use you, he can do with you more than you could have ever done by yourself. But you have to make yourself available. God can't use you if you won't do anything. God can't use you if you never ask to help anybody. God can't use you if you never volunteer for anything in the church. God can't use you if you never talk to anybody about anything. All right? Get out there and quit thinking, well, I'm just a couple of loaves of bread. Look, it's overwhelming. You know, you, if you look at the need, it's hard not to just be crushed by the need and think, what difference can I make? I, you know, I feel this all the time. I deal with married couples so much. Talking about marriage and family. And I do a daily radio show. If you've, <laughs> if you've never heard that, you ought to tune in and listen to this insanity. But I'm telling you, I, it's just, at times I get so discouraged, I think. There are so many screwed up people in the world. How can anybody fix this? What's the point? So many people without God, what's the point? So many hungry people, what's the point? So many needs, so much, what's the point? And if you think that way, then the devil wins in your life. You have to be able to walk in and look at a hundred people with just a few sandwiches and say, this is perfect. This is great. Why? Because God can take what you give him and meet the need. Now what's interesting is God likes to use stuff even for the final end. I mean, come on, he's God. He could have snapped his fingers and boom, you know, turned the rocks into bread. He could have had birds flying. I mean, there's all the kinds of different ways God's have done, God has done things. There could have been manna falling from heaven and they could have all got fed. But God delights in using people. And so here the person comes and they give what they have. Again, the same analogy when Jesus said, feed the people. And the disciples said, we can't. He said, what you got? What do you mean, what do we got? We can't do it. So that's the way a lot of us would think. We wouldn't even get to the what do we got part. That's too much. It's too much. But I love the fact that Jesus asked, what do you got? I got five loaves, a couple of fishes from this punk kid. We stole it from him. <laughs> he says, take what you got and start serving people. Watch what will happen. And God does a miracle. So don't get discouraged that you're not something that's maybe from this world's viewpoint, something really astounding or unusually gifted or full of incredible wisdom or limited resources or whatever. Remember, bring the basic materials and let God do the miracle. It reminds me of the, the miracle, one of the first ones we read about. The, uh, they just had a little jar of oil. And Elisha says, go, man, get as many jars as you can fill them all up. Well, why didn't God just, boom, because she needed money. That's what she needed. Why didn't God just, boom, she finds, you know, you know, millions of dollars in a mattress somewhere. God likes to take what you have and make something out of it. Take the little you have and make it into much. We see these miracles over and over and over again. 
Taking the little bit. But you've got to give your little bit. Or God can't use it to touch a lost and dying world. All right, so now we go on to the next miracle. This is chapter 5. Like I said, miracle after miracle after miracle here. Uh, none of them seem to be related in any way, shape, or form. But again, just showing how, what an incredible prophet this Elisha guy was. Now we're reading about a guy named Naaman. Now Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now Aram uh, and Israel uh, did not get along with each other by and large. Uh, these kings back in this time, you know, very medieval, very psycho crazy. On the one hand, it's like these, you, you read every once in a while, these kings even in battle will see each other and embrace, my brother, my brother. What do you mean my brother? You're trying to kill me. It's like they, they had respect for each other as kings, but they had their separate little areas and they're always fighting with each other for more property and trying to take stuff from each other and you know, even though they kind of liked it. It was just weird. It's just weird craziness. These people were nuts. Just nuts. It's certainly from our viewpoint today. It's like, what in the world? So anyway, so Naaman, he's the commander of the king of Aram. Now, he was a great man on the side of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given a victory to Aram. Uh, we don't know how or where or why, but we just know that God had uh, blessed this man as a great commander, and so he's Highly thought of in Aram. And, uh, but the guy gets sick. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Very nasty disease uh, back in the day. Nobody, there, were, there was no cures. People didn't, have, they didn't know what they could do about it. And, uh, pretty much you're miserable. And now it says here, bands from Aram had gone out and had taken a young, captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. So, you can see right here, there's this conflict between these armies all the time. Uh, they're attacking and stealing from one another. And in this particular case, one time they go for a, a, you know, on a little raid and they see this young girl and they grab her. She's now a slave. You know, you can imagine how ticked off everybody would be from such an action. But now she's a slave and she's working in Na Naaman's house as a servant to the wife. Well, she sees Naaman covered with leprosy and stuff. And she says to Naaman's wife, her mistress, so, you know, if only my master would, would go see the prophet who's in Samaria, talking about Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. Why would she say that? All these miracles that we're seeing here, and who knows how many more are not recorded here. I mean, this guy was amazing. And if there was one thing they were getting a sense of, is that God is alive and well through this prophet. I mean, there are all these incredible miracles. So she's hearing these miracles. She sees this guy who's sick. You're already hearing stories of, you know, Elisha raising people from the dead and whatnot. So she kind of likes this family. though know, she's a slave. She's, who, know, who knows how long she's been there? And she says, you know, I see him suffering with his leprosy. Boy, if you just, if you just went to, uh, to the prophet up in Samaria, where Israel is, he'd cure him of his leprosy. Well, Naaman went to his master, the king of Aram, and told him what the girl from Israel had said. He said, you know, I, we, I got the slave girl. She's from Israel. They say that there is a prophet there who can heal people. And, of course, the king sees this highly regarded man. He was in charge of all the armies. He was a great, valiant soldier. 
suffering. So the king says, by all means, verse 5, by all means, go. So the king of Aram replied, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Again, dysfunctional psycho craziness. They're fighting with each other. They're always stealing stuff from each other. But yet, yeah, go see him. I'll send a letter. He'll see you. You know, it's, it's just weird. I don't know what was going on. Uh, at, one, at one level, there was this fraternal thing between these kings. But at the same time, they're going to war with each other and fighting for stuff. You know, I'd, I'd still be ticked off because you stole the girl. But apparently that was no big deal. He said, well, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll send a letter and uh, go, see the, so go see the king of Israel and get healed. So Naaman left, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten sets of clothing. So he basically loads them with all kinds of money and gifts. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, uh, with this letter I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Again, very odd, because not only do you guys not like each other at some level and fighting all the time, you are now sending the chief, he was a commander in the army. This is the guy who's leading armies to try and kill you. The guy shows up, I think, kill this guy. You know, get rid of one of their generals. You know, we're that much further ahead. Anyway, all bizarre to me. So... As soon, so he goes, comes up, shows the king of Israel. Here comes Naaman, this warrior. Apparently must have some pomp and circumstance. He has access to the king because one king sends a letter to the other king. And, uh, yeah. and then the king reads the letter, which said, I'm sending Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Well, as soon as the king of Israel reads the letter, he tears his robes. Again, very dramatic Middle Eastern culture. They're always tearing something and yelling and screaming or whatever. So he tears his robes and says, what? So I can cure him of his leprosy? Are you insane? Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send me someone here to be cured of his leprosy? See, he's trying to pick a, pick a quarrel with me. See, they, because there was, there was always this weird dysfunctional thing, respect, but yet looking for reasons to fight. So right away he says, this guy, he's just, he's just looking for a fight here. So he's going to send me this guy. I'm supposed to cure him. I can't cure him. He's going to go to war with me because I, I wouldn't cure his guy. I mean, it's very strange. Well, anyway, Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king had torn his robes. and was all freaked out. And he heard the story about what is happening. So Elijah says, why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. And he will know that there was a prophet in Israel. So the king of Israel didn't put two and two together that what this guy was looking for was Elisha the prophet. All they knew was um, that there was a big healer in Israel. So this guy said, well, if I show up to the king and ask for healing, he connected me with this guy. Well, the king of Israel didn't know what he's talking about. Okay? Obviously, as we can see later on, often the king and Elisha weren't getting along just like the king and Elijah were not getting along. Because these kings were so wicked. They kept rebelling against God. So anyway, so Naaman went, verse 9, uh, with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. So here he comes. He's a hoity-toity diplomat. Not diplomat, but, you know, diplomatic stature at this point. He's, he's allowed to travel in the country. He's an important man. He's a commander of the army over at Aram. He comes, with his, and he comes to the house of Elijah. Well, Elijah doesn't even go see him. He says, he sends his messenger. 
And the messenger says, uh, yeah, I was just talking to Elijah, and uh, he says uh, what you ought to do is you ought to wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and then your flesh will be restored, and you'll be cleansed. See ya. Close the door. Visit some other time. I'm out of here. Well, Naaman is furious. He is so insulted that he would come and this prophet would not come. I mean, he comes all with his hoity-toitiness. And, you know, this is insult. These guys, got, they have huge egos, these men. And again, it takes very little to tick them off. And as soon as they get ticked off, they'll kill you. You know, they're always looking for a fight. So he goes away. He's just fried. And he said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of the leprosy. And instead he tells me to go wash in their stupid river. Are you kidding me? He says, are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? This is insulting. Why should I go get in their rivers? If anything, he should have just told me to go home to one of our great rivers. Again, finding offense in almost anything. Reminds me of a lot of church people looking for offense every time. Oh, that offends me. That offends me. That offends me. Anyway, okay. So, he says, could I wash one of those waters and be cleansed? So he turned off and went off in a rage. He is fried, just ticked off. Well, now, Naaman's servants are going, you, yo, 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 dude, chill. My father, they said, if this prophet had told you to do something great, wouldn't have you done it? See, sometimes what God asks us to do is so simple. People can't handle it. They stumble over it. He says, if, you, if he would have come to you and said, man, climb some great mountain, do some great feat, if you'll do this, would you not, oh, great commander, have done it? How much more when he tells you, just go wash and be cleansed? I mean, what's the deal? But I'm telling you, it's because people can't handle the idea that things can be so simple. Again, back to what we've been talking about tonight, which is, you know, look, God can use you. No, he can't. No, he can't. God can take your poison and turn it into life for others. No, 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 it's, it's, it's much more complicated than that. Really? You think you're, you're too much, you're too, you're too complicated for God. You know, you look at the universe. God can run the entire universe, but you, oh, heaven is way much too much complicated for God to handle your little world. Goodness gracious, I'm sure he can't sleep at night wondering how he's going to unscramble your eggs. Do you really think it's too hard? God can't use me. I don't have much to give. I only got a couple of loaves, you know. Hey, God can use you. Oh, it's too, it's too complicated. No. God oftentimes will take the very simplest path. This is in point of fact, and we'll finish this next week, but this is, and find out what happens to Naaman here. But if, if, if there's one analogy, it's that people come into a church like ours and they hear the gospel message. If you'll just believe, you can be saved. And they can't handle it. It's too simple. It can't possibly be that simple. You know, tell me to pray. Tell me to, to, 
to sit on my knees, you know, for, uh, and, and crawl on glass or something for a long time or, or pay a bunch of money or say 15 million prayers or be baptized upside down in prune juice or, or what I've got. Surely I've got to do a bunch of things and if I, after I've done a bunch of things and read a bunch of books and disciplined myself and lots of, then, surely then, then I can be saved. This idea, you said, all I got to do is believe this is insulting. It can't possibly be true and they miss it. They miss the gospel message. They miss the miracle of salvation because they're like this man in a sense even though he's in great need and he's full of leprosy people coming into churches like this they're full of sin they're rotting their lives are a disaster everything they touch turns to poison they are a mess and we say we have hope for you really what is it what must I do to be how do I do this and we say just believe and they can't handle it it, it can't be true. Some of you got friends like this. Some of you got parents like this. You got relatives. They can't handle the fact that all you're saying is if you'll just put your faith in Christ, you can be saved and it's too simple for them. And they walk away like Naaman, angry. Walk away like Naaman, disappointed. Walk away like Naaman, frustrated. Because it can't possibly, can't possibly be that Simple. I love the servants of Naaman. They had a clue. They said, hey, if you said something really hard, wouldn't have you done it? Yeah. Well, why not do something simple and see what happens? And when we come back next week, we will see what happens. See you next week.